The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. I, I see this banner above us and it says Radical Surrender. And... Um, This sermon for me has been a radical surrender. Um, it's, it's. Um, I said to someone a couple minutes ago uh, in the back, I said, you know, this is a tall glass of water, tall cup of water to drink. Um, and I love the wisdom of my friend. He he said, uh, well, small sips at a time. <laughs> And uh, that's really where I feel with uh, having studied. Uh, Colin, I, I didn't know this time last year, or last week that I'd be up here. Um, so this has been a very busy week. Uh, Colin uh, gave me the text, <clears throat> and I took one look at the text, and I was like, wow, this is, this is quite a passage, and I hadn't even studied it. Um, so... I cannot tell you just how convicted I am. I mean, I will not even try to pretend that I've got all of this uh, plum in my life. Um, and none of us do. Um, so I'm just trusting God. I'm entrusting myself to him. This is a really tough, tough passage. Um, but it's beneficial and... Um, I just humbly bring this to you in this hour. Um, I'm going to pray and we're going to show a video um, just quickly um, related to this text. Lord, I love you. I thank you. I surrender to you. It's all yours. And uh, I can't speak. Words that will change hearts, that's your job, the job of you, the Holy Spirit. I pray that you will transform our lives as we try to live in application to Scripture. I thank you <clears throat> that you have such a profound love for us, a love that put you on a cross on our behalf. That's just how much you deeply care about each and every one here today. And uh, we just give you this hour that, God, you would renew and revive our hearts with the cleansing and soaking of your word. And and we just radically surrender to you our hearts in this hour. It's yours. Um, come, Holy Spirit, come and take preeminence in our lives. And we want to be obedient and surrender to Scripture, which we we yield uh, to you. We lay it all down to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a saying that I came across this year um, through uh, Jerry and several others of uh, God's got this. Um, I'm not wearing the bracelet today. I'd given it to a friend. Uh, earlier, but God has got this. And so um, that is the backdrop that I, I want just tattooed on our foreheads that, that, you know, in the midst of everything that life throws at us, God has got this. Um, we have the contrast here of, of Exodus where there is an army of 600 chariots, uh, Egypt's finest fighting men that are at Israel's back and are going to slaughter them if, if unless God intercedes. And they are at a precipice where they are they are um, they have the army of of uh, Egypt on their back, and they have the Red Sea in in front, and they're stuck. Like I mean, they're boxed in, and there is nothing that they can do but God, but put their faith in Him, but. That is not really the response of Israel. 
And and that is so convicting because as I've read a lot of this, like some of us, we we have the heart of Israel, it, which is fear. We we're afraid of this army that is is a reality, but at the same time, we need to entrust ourselves to God who is able. These are Red Sea moments. And uh, one of the things I'm really sad about is just how um, how Israel responds. They have two complaints that I think are quite notable. Uh, one of the complaints they bring to Moses with, as the uh, chariots are, are on their backs is um, they say to Moses, they say so, and there's some satire and there's some uh, comedy and, and I think, I mean, tongue-in-cheek of what they're saying. But they say to Moses, one of their complaints, they say, so did you lead us right here outside of Egypt to this spot to bury us because they ran out of cemeteries in Egypt? You know, basically you brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery to bring us here because we're going to die here because they didn't have land there. Like meaning we could have died there, but they didn't have land. So you're bringing us here to have the same fate of death. Uh, wow. Like as a leader, you're like, whoa, like these people, their complaints are like quite high uh, of expectations. The other complaint they made uh, that grumbled with is they said to Moses, they've just come out of slavery, 300 years in slavery. And they say, what? Can we go back to Egypt? Like they want to go back to Egypt. Wow. Like, I mean, whoa, that that's that's quite a lofty moment. Um, but we we find ourselves sometimes sharing those grumbling complaints. And um, I want to tell you something. I, I really want to lodge this fresh in our minds. When we're talking in this next hour about grumbling, complaining, I'm not telling you to stuff it. I'm not telling you to keep your mouth quiet. Because that the issue might be grumbling and complaining. And, and I, I raised my hand to that. That might be the issue. I might have a grumbling and complaining heart. Um, but it can't be solved by keeping my mouth quiet. i got to deal with this. Because this is going to make this move and speak. And if I keep my mouth quiet, but this is still the issue under the surface, we're never going to get past the issue. It's an issue of the heart, oftentimes with grumbling and complaining. But I want to kind of give you some hope, which is faith. And consider this uh, stool here, faith, okay? You all applied faith today by sitting down and you didn't know for sure that these chairs would hold your weight or that would actually you know you'd be able to sit in it without it breaking but uh, you did and you applied faith in that moment you put your trust and you are right now putting trust in the chair you know to support you and and that's what faith is we're choosing to place our our weight our our support into what holds us and God is is the only one capable of fully doing that in every way so this stool is faith and I want you to to place your faith in God moving forward every day now when we consider God there's really there's legs to the chair that support that faith and these are attributes and I'm going to, this is a four-legged stool, so, um, but I have three points. <clears throat> so the three legs that hold and support faith, our trust in God, is his love. And that's an important, that's a, that's a really important component to God. Not every religion believes that God is actually loving. Um, some believe God is impersonal. Some believe that God has come to earth to smite wrath upon the people. I lived in a country that believed that. But the heartbeat of God in Christianity, in the Judeo-Christian ethic, is one of love. 
the greatest love of all, agape love. And that is important because as I approach God in prayer or approach God at all, it's so important, incredibly important that he is a God who cares about me, that cares about you. He knows every hair on on your head. He knows everything about you. Everything's on the table about your life to him, whether you told him or not. There's nothing in this heart that he doesn't already know. So we can even kind of pretend to people how our life is, but God, God knows every bit of it already. The, the next component, and we have to ask that question as we approach God, does he care? Does he truly care what's best for me? Does he love me? The next is his power. An important component to faith is that are we placing our faith in someone who is able? That That's a just question, is it not? Absolutely he's able. We know that he's more than able. He spun the whole cosmos into existence with his spoken word. God is more than able. Um, so it really is important as we approach God about his um, his love, his power, is he able? That as, as we come to this God who cares, is he able to grant the size of our request? The next leg to the chair, the final leg, is his wisdom. Does he know what is truly best for my life? Even when these are things I don't want in my life, we have to still entrust him that God knows intimately and purposely what truly is best for you. And and these are things that we need to trust God for as we approach his throne. So this is kind of the framework that um, I do want to kind of lay uh, from the beginning. Now, this is kind of where it gets a little hard is uh, the passage. Um, I have a major premise for everything that I'm about to say. And I ask a question. This is kind of a question God gave me from the beginning of kind of studying for this sermon. And that's a question that has haunted me in a good way. Um, Do godly people grumble? As we approach this text, do godly people grumble? Is this an attribute, is this a distinctive of us being godly? Do godly people grumble? I want you to just keep that question at the forefront of your mind. Now, as a group, um, Jerry and I and a couple men were having a discussion about first world problems. And and uh, it was kind of comical, some of the things we were talking, and we would just kind of jab and be like, yeah, first world problem. Like, you know, just some of the things that we experience here in, in the first world that are just not the paradigm for the rest of the world. And I had kind of a probing question, and I thought, what is the population of the United States comparative to the rest of the world? Does anybody know that? Any estimate? Less than 5%. So the United States population, I think it's like 330 million or more, give or take a couple million. Uh, Anyway, we're less than 5% of the world's population. Less than 5 how much of the world's wealth do you think that we have here in God Bless America? 31% of the world's wealth. China is 18%. So we have almost double the world's wealth of China to, to kind of size that up. But 5% of the population and one in every $3 that are in the world distributed, we have one of those $3 in our pockets. You know, we might think in the in the Western world, our first world problems that we have complaints. And let me tell you, I've lived in two third world countries, and and we got nothing to complain about. I mean, I'm not trying to bash the country that I love, but we have nothing to complain about. And this sermon is not even about money. Money's not even what's important, but I just want you to consider the things you think are a problem, not a problem, compared to the scope of what are real problems. 
And this is a real problem that I want to bring to your attention. We're going to do, I'm going to read Philippians 2, 14 through 15. And this is the Apostle Paul speaking in Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish and the world of a crooked and a twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, in contrast to the evil world, the world that we live in, the fallen world, we are to be lights. But the very first part of this um, monthly verse that we're memorizing, our memory verse for this month, about shining, is do all things without grumbling or disputing. And this is where it gets really difficult for me. (laughs) Um, I'm going to unpackage for you just kind of what uh, this without complaining is kind of speaking about in in the Greek and, and throughout Scripture. So without complaining, the Greek word for complaining is a term that sounds much like uh, what it means to have a low tone growl. Like, you know, have you ever heard people kind of mumble or mutter under their breath or like that? You're breathing in deeply air or, you know, like you can just but you're in your head, right? Like you're thinking about things the way the world's on your shoulders that's what this is talking about. It's really like the Greek word literally sounds like a grumble or like a like you know. What, however you murmur, uh, that's the sound. Okay. It also means muttering or grumbling or murmuring is kind of the old King James version. No matter how we slice the pie, it's all negative connotations. There's nothing good about grumbling and complaining. The primary essence, though, of the, the word complaining is it's a heart issue. It's, it's what's in our heart. It's the emotions. Um, and it's pretty serious stuff uh, because, you know, emotions in our heart affect our will. And uh, so it's sort of like an emotional rejection of God's providence. Like, you know, I think even so much as, uh, honestly, complaining about the weather here in Florida when people are coming here for the weather in Florida, like, God, God help us. Like, I grew up in Canada where I shoveled the driveway for about an hour most nights, like after school shoveling the driveway. We had a 100-foot driveway. Um, God help us when we complain about the, even so much as the weather. I mean, this is convicting stuff, y'all. Um, so without um, th- this second key word I'm going to use it, uh, in this text is, and unpackage is without disputing. This is actually not disputing with you all. When it is my heart and I'm disputing, it's actually aimed at him. This is kind of where the essence of the Greek is talking about. It's more than an intellectual disputing. This is kind of, and this is where it's so convicting. It's where I'm questioning, I'm criticizing, I'm thinking in my thoughts, and I'm sort of like raising this fist against God Almighty. In my heart, I'm disputing with him. Um, This disputing in the Greek is thoughts. That's how it's translated as thoughts. So the convicting thing is like, you know, you ever roll around in your bed at night thinking about things? That That's this moment here where you're just like there's angst and, and you're worried about things. And uh, there's such a need to surrender this um, for our own benefit and good, to surrender this over to a living God. Um. So, yeah, it's a graphic description, this um, arm fist raised to heaven. You know the story of the um, rainbow in Genesis? The rainbow is a bow. Like, you know, you you got your bow and you're um, shooting arrows. And that's what sin is. Sin is the, the original 
word for sin is is missing the mark. It's an archery term. It's like you're shooting the 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 target and you miss. Your your aim is the target and you miss. But in Genesis you have this rainbow and the bow used to be aimed up at God when sin entered into the world and God turned the bow um where now or no actually the uh the bow was uh, aimed at us because of our sin. Sorry. Was aimed at us downward because of our sin. But God changed that. He knew um, that there needed to be a redemptive plan and he aims his arrows up at him. He's going to take the offense. Not, not for us. Now... Um, Chapter 215 of Philippians says that you may become. um, This is introducing to the text hope. Um, Because our situation is that we have reasons as believers. um, We have have to correct our attitude with, with who God sees us to be. He has made us to be his children. Children of God. Now this is um, our... Our position is sure. We're children of God. Our behavior is being worked out with our progressive sanctification. God is working this this behavior of ours, our conduct out. He's the Holy Spirit is bringing things to the surface, um, and and I'm thankful that that God is in this process with me. Now, children of God, it, it um, it's speaking. Um, of a future tense that one of these days glorification is going to take place. We're going to receive our new bodies. This world will not be the chaos that it it is. We'll be with him. And um, I just want to say this to you too. No matter what suffering I or you have encountered in our life, and it could go deep. The sin of this world is deep. No matter what you have, though, experienced in your life, maybe even abuse, and I want to be sensitive about this, one moment, and I want to give you this hope, the light that shines, one hope that I can give you is one moment in heaven will erase a lifetime of suffering. These are momentary afflictions scripture talks about. What what we suffer, these are momentary. They're not forever. It's not going to be your destiny. But one of these days we will stand in heaven and let me tell you that first moment will erase any... It'll pale in, in the scope of eternity everything that God has for us. It will be glorious. And so that's hope I want to put into your heart. Um, this passage is talking about shining light. And, and uh, one of these days, uh, and positionally right now, we are blameless. The reality is that we will one day live everything that is spoken of, like in reality. Um, but right now we are blameless positionally before him. Um, that means... I don't know if you know the word justification. Justification means to declare righteous. It's a legal term. That could mean that you're not, like let's just say you broke a law. Now you're not uh, innocent. But because you place your trust and your faith in him today, he declares you righteous, though you're not. He declares you. It's a legal term. That's what happens when you are born again. Now, sanctification, which happens after you become a child of his, he's making you sanctified, holy. Sanctified means holy, to make holy, to make righteous. So you're declared righteous at justification. In sanctification, you are made righteous and holy. Um, he's, He's working that out in your life for good. And glorification is where you actually are um, who he wants you to be, every bit of it. 
But in this life, we are to live blameless and harmless. We're to be innocent like children. We're to be unadulterated from sin. We're to be pure, unmixed. Um, Blameless describes a life that cannot be criticized because of sin or evil done intentionally. And that's really the aim that we should seek after is, is to, to live out um, the life um, that he has for us. To be holy as he is holy. Um, to be without fault. To be a, above reproach. Um, now, this is where, um, <clears throat> this is, you know, this will preach. Uh, the key word here is uh, a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked. Um, the, this word in the Greek, it comes out as pretty much osteoporosis or scoliosis. It, it's, uh, the root word is dealing with uh, like a curvature in the spinal column. I knocked my, I dislocated my shoulder several times. And let me tell you, gravity, when it pulls down, like which is, that's the natural physics of our planet. Uh, boy, I tell you, like when the structural parts of your body are not sound, they're not going to support weight and gravity. Dislocating your shoulder is like it can be incredibly painful. Um, I dislocated my shoulder once and it took hours for them to put it in. I dislocated my shoulder once and it hurt so bad, but I didn't know what had happened the first time. I made the mistake instead of going to the hospital, I went and I slept on it all night. And then when I woke up in the morning, it was even worse than it was. Uh, yeah. And so I literally, I'm not, I, I've had to give up things like baseball. I, I I really can't do much. Um, I'll knock my shoulder out just swinging the bat. Anyhow, uh, so the curvature. Now, uh, the other part of this crooked generation um, that we're to be light in the midst of is uh, this understanding of of like a deviation from the standard. It's not what it should be. It's just going further and further away from the truth. That's... Oh, that's a reality. Every time you read the newspaper, can it get any worse? Like sometimes you wonder, like, can the world really like get any worse than this? Um, and it probably can. <laughs> um, all of us have deviated from God's moral, righteous laws and standards. Um, this is true of all of us who have strayed away from God's path. There are truly no good old days. I think that there always has been sin at, at work in our, our world. Um, Paul goes on to even double down on this crookedness of the world, this fallen world we live in. He doubled down. He doubles down by calling um, every generation, really. It's not just first century. It's, it's even today a perverse generation. And this is intensifying, magnifying our sin problem. I self-identify um, as as a uh, uh, as a sinner, and uh, we all must do that. <clears throat> it's a perverse generation that we live in, um, who have strayed so far from the path, uh, this deviation that we're severely twisted and distorted, um, unless the light of the gospel enters into our situation. And that is why um, the imperative is to shine our light. The basis of all this entire sermon is shining our light. This is a a metaphor um, in uh, verse 15. It's a reference, an analogy for spiritual character. So when, as we're talking about shining today, uh, the essence of everything I have to say is is about character. It's, It's not just about shining your light, it's the quality of the light that you're shining. You want to shine as brightly as possible. Nothing is more bright than the sun uh, in our universe. Um, and Jesus is that shining light. He, he's everything. Uh, all of life is supported by Jesus and his light that shines. Now, I think a, a good way of us seeing this relationship between us and Jesus is if he is the sun, and as Colin has said, we're then the moon. 
The moon has no light apart from the sun that reflects upon the moon and, and others see that light on the reflection of the moon. We are to be that reflection. We're going to do it imperfectly. So, like, I don't want to preach law at you. Like, you know, we're, we're progressing closer to him. But, and that, that doesn't all happen after my sermon. Uh, it doesn't happen all tonight. Um, you know, we, we, we're works in progress. We've got a long way to go. Um, but character is important. Have you ever seen someone that claimed to be a Christian but were very inconsistent with the one that they're proclaiming? And so as we are out making him known, we got to be very careful that as we're making him known, we're we're living the character of the one we're making known. The character of him that laid down his life for us. Um, It's so incredibly important. Um, to light up the night, to light it up, a dark sky. Um, there's darkness all around us, and we need to be diligent to shine that light. That light that they're talking about shining too, in the Greek it plays out this way. It is saying you must shine your light. It's a command. So if you have the light, the idea is like what Jesus said, if you have that light, you don't put a bushel over top of it to cover the light so that it's darkness in the room. If God has given you the light, it's to shine that light. Otherwise, you have a flashlight that's serving no purpose at all. And so this is like just the basis, man, it fires me up, of just how much we must shine that light. If we have the light, we have to shine it. And that's the other essence of the Greek is it's saying we have to shine it. It's imperative. If you hear anything today, it is share, share as much as, as you can his truth. Um, and I just want to pray again. Uh, I just want to pray again. Uh, Father, this is like so important. It's crucial even. We are so prone to wander and to stray from your truth. We're so sure to grumble and complain. But God, please use this time again to uh, be brighter in darkness, to shine by your transforming power. The only way to shine is by your transformation, the work that you're doing in us. And that, God, we would be murmur-free. We have no reason at all to complain or to grumble in light of being in the first world without... Make us without grumbling, God. And we ask this thing again in Jesus' name. Again, I ask the question, do godly people grumble? I want to read uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Um, but the first thing I want to point out to you is that this verse that we're talking about, do not grumble and complain, um, do not be disputing. If you go up two verses, uh, there's a therefore. And so Paul is saying what he's saying to us, but he says first therefore. And he says therefore... Um, he wants us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This isn't saying that we're not saved. It's saying we need to treat our salvation, what he has given us, this light, seriously. And so this um, working out our salvation with fear and trembling is is um, definitely a part of this text. And you know how you work out your fear or work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It's by not grumbling and complaining. We, we have to approach life um, as, as a witness, but a witness with his conduct and his character. The quality of our light has to shine, and it's, it's so important. So this is in context to working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and it's to do it without grumbling or complaining. I'm going to read uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, if you have your Bibles, and it says, Do nothing out of 
selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? It's Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, he was the form of God. Yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means he came to this earth um, not, not counting his being God as something to hold on to. He came to rescue us. Did God have to come to rescue us? No, he didn't. Jesus did, was under no obligation to come save us. But he did. He left. I couldn't even imagine what he left. You know, he left everything behind. I've heard it said that God bankrupted heaven for our rescue. That's how much we are worth to him in his eyes. Verse 5, five uh, um, so Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Can you imagine the King of Kings, Lord of all Lords, coming from heaven and picking up a towel to serve us? Amazing. Being born in the likeness of man. And this is what we celebrate, in essence, at Christmas, is his coming to earth. In being found in a human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what this is saying is if there was anything Jesus had to complain about, there was a lot. He had left heaven, but he did not grumble. Um, He came in the form of man, and he didn't grumble. Uh, he became a servant, and he didn't grumble. He was born in the likeness of man, didn't grumble, didn't murmur. He was in a human form. He humbled himself. Um, he didn't murmur or grumble. He became obedient even to the point of death. That means like that, that qualifies for us too, that even if you're in the point of death, You don't have a reason to grumble or murmur or complain. Paul even qualifies this by saying even death on a cross. He's pointing out Jesus still didn't grumble, complain, or murmur. The worst death of all is what Paul is pointing out Jesus did. He died the worst death. You know why he died the most worst, worst death? The word excruciating that we know in the English word comes from the root word in Greek of crucifixion. So it's talking about the extent of that excruciating death that he died um, on a cross. That's only half of it. That's pain that he experienced. I'm not undermining uh, what he went through. The greatest thing of the cross experience for Jesus wasn't being naked, wasn't being flogged. Everything was his being separated by our sin for the first time. He knew not sin at all. And it was that of, it says in Isaiah that God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He bore sin, First uh, Peter says, in his body on a cross. All for us. And that's why we shouldn't grumble. That's why we shouldn't complain. Is, I mean, he, if he didn't complain about any of this, what right do we have to raise our fist at God and, and question things in our life that we don't like. Jesus, um, <clears throat> so in the contrast of this passage um, in Philippians 2, 3 through 8, is that um, there's a contrast of selfish ambition met by Jesus's humility. There's a contrast of conceit in verse 3, 
with counting others as more significant than yourselves, which Jesus did. Have you ever prayed for something that you really want to see happen and God said no and you're thankful for it? I've prayed some things that I was really wanting God to do and now I am like, thank you, Lord, for your gracious, kind favor in my life from not saying yes to that in his wisdom. Um, the contrast is of uh, in verse 4, don't look to others, uh, don't look to serve others with your own interests, with the goal and rule of, of treating others better than you treat yourself or loving your neighbors as you love yourself. There's a contrast in this passage of don't be selfish with being worthy of, uh, uh, of serving others. Um, so and it says, have this mind of Jesus in verse 5 as our shining example of how Jesus uh, was the foremost example that we can ever follow. He emptied himself, but again, he was without grumbling. Uh, he was born in a lowly state without grumbling. Um, and I, I've cried through some of, as I've written some of this, uh, it has just truly humbled me. But I want you to consider Jesus um, in Isaiah 53.3. He was despised. Have you ever been despised? Jesus was despised and he lived his life without grumbling or complaining. He was rejected of men. I'm not sure if you've really thought about that, but Jesus was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, he's described as. He can identify with you in these things. At the center of your sorrow, he was there. He's been through it. He didn't receive respect or admiration. He was born in a trough in a barn with no room in the inn. He goes even today without appreciation. He's a swear word for some people, a cuss word. Jesus was acquainted with grief. Um, he had the full human experience. He suffered. He was hurt. He was brokenhearted. He was rejected. He was. Uh, he experienced abuse. And we esteemed him not, it says, in light of what Jesus went through. Jesus did all of these things that I'm talking about without murmuring, complaining, or disputing with God. He was willing to to die without murmuring. It says that as a lamb was led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth in, in that other part of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 says, Jesus uh, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, uh, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so Jesus did not open his mouth. Uh, one bit to complain. Uh, this was very uh, humbling. It was First Peter 2, verse 22 through 23. It says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, Peter says he did not revile in return. When he suffered, Jesus did not threaten, but continued continually Jesus entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Um, can we just like praise God right now? I mean, just literally like, thank you, Lord. You know, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. Just praise him. I mean, just praise him right now. Um, and so... This is a hard message to preach about not complaining and and uh, that sort. Um, but Jesus is the ultimate example we follow. It says uh, it says to be imitators of God, and that's what Christian means. Is it means little Christ? We're we're little mini me's, <laughs> you know. We're minions of Christ. We're we're little Christs. 
we follow him imperfectly, but conduct and character, the quality of that light is important. But we are imitators of him. We mimic him. It's like Simon says. We, he says that we follow. We do. We, we, we try to emulate him. Um, we follow in his footsteps. We follow in the dust of our rabbi. We follow closely. That's what following in the dust of our rabbi means, is that we follow so close behind him that, that the dust off his shoes ought to, ought to be on our clothing as to how we want to uh, live, live for him. <clears throat> I want to consider uh, one final person before we close, and that's to consider the Apostle Paul. You know that I haven't even told you yet, but you know what the context of this entire book is? Like where he wrote this book from? Can anybody tell me? Prison. Can you imagine writing this from prison? <laughs> like, And his perspective is to not grumble and complain. If anybody had reason to grumble and complain, again, it's Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Like, I, I don't know if I, I've never been incarcerated yet, but if I was writing writing a humble letter to my mom, I, I might be probably complaining or disputing, you know. Um, that's what courts are for, is to dispute the charges. Um, but I, I cannot even imagine, Paul talks about being shipwrecked three times. He was flogged like more than once. He was beaten with rods. Um, you know, I, I cannot even imagine just what the Paul, Apostle Paul endured in testimony. It says in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, these are people that shined throughout history as uh, Christians. It says ultimately of them that, and the world was not worthy of them. These were people that were torn apart by lions. They were, they were tortured. They suffered. Um, it even talks in Hebrews 11 of like people that were sought in two. Um, all of the disciples died martyrs' deaths. All the apostles died as martyrs except for John. All, all suffered. Peter was hung upside down on a cross because he, he considered that cross of ours over here. He considered himself not worthy enough to be crucified in the same the same manner of our Lord. You know, that will preach. Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says, uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have uh, learned in whatever situation to be content. Now, the opposite of being con- uh, t- content is to grumble and to complain. And, and Paul had reached a point, even in prison, of being content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, Paul says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. And that is it, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul was unstoppable. He was titanium in his resolve. I mean, as strong as titanium. Um, Paul says, though, therefore, in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I know you've heard that passage preached before, but it probably wasn't in context of complaining. But this is the context, is that Paul's saying, I have no reason to con- contend with the Lord. It, it's contentment. It's the opposite of grumbling. Philippians 3, 7, and 8 says, But whatever I gain, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, indeed, let me say it again. I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth and value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. Um, In England, that's garbage. Um, But the Greek actually in in rubbish, it's talking about kind of dung. Like, you know, uh, he considers it all excrement in order that he might gain Christ. So everything, he says three times, loss, loss, loss. He's considering everything in this world that isn't Christ, not of value. 
That's the secret of contentment. Man, we have so many idols in this world, uh, so many idols in our culture. Uh, but the greatest thing of all value is Christ. That is where we find our significance um, is in him. In conclusion, um, I just want to apply grace uh, to this situation. Um, I just want you to know just how much he loves you, uh, loves you deeply. And uh, just as we close, a, a couple verses I want to share with you is First uh, Peter 4, 1 through uh, yeah, First Peter 4, verse 1. And it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this is how we shine our light. We need to arm ourselves with this same way of thinking. What I'm telling you in, in terms of grumbling and complaining is that, you know, if we don't figure this out, it, it is going to be an impediment in our way. If we don't fig- figure the grumbling and complaining, like taming um, our heart in this area, um, it, it's gonna it's gonna staunt the growth of God's work in our life. Because we find our joy actually in serving others, we find our joy, our contentment, our peace. We find that actually in the midst of suffering. Um, suffering in Scripture is actually said to be a good thing. And so we need to have this mindset. You know that we're probably, and and I'm no prophet here, but we're probably on the brink of persecution in this country. I'm no prophet. But I, I would say to you today that we need to hear a message on suffering to prepare to suffer because uh, things are just changing around the world. And, and we need to be people that, that really have, have an, an idea that suffering's not going to hold me back from serving my Lord. Um, I was in India, and uh, one of my best friends who was Indian, an Indian pastor, they beat him up one night, threw his body in the ditch in front of our home, and I was living with him, uh, and he didn't come home that night. And I didn't realize he had come home. He was in the ditch. They had beat him up so bad and threw him right in front of my house where I was staying. And the message that they gave him was was that we're next. The the international, uh, like I was, a, I, I was a foreigner in India. And the message was you're next. And uh, let me tell you, like, I, I learned a lot of, of things that I hadn't been raised with uh, growing up. And we need to have this mindset. In order to shine joyfully in the midst of suffering, uh, we need to do things all without grumbling, to be imitators of Christ, to embrace suffering. Jesus said of this, and and, uh, I want you to really uh, sow this seed in your heart, Jesus said, when they persecute you, insult and accuse you falsely in my name, rejoice and be glad. We are advised by our Lord that they don't hate you, they hate him. They hate you because of him. And so we have to embrace, it. it it's imperative, we have to embrace and rejoice and be glad. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And uh, because it's because of of your great uh, your your great reward is in heaven. It it is coming as when we suffer. A church that joyfully embraces suffering and rejoices in it, I tell you today, is an unstoppable force. Jesus said of the church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this church, I have surety, I have no doubt in this, it will march forward with me or without me, without you or uh, with you or without you. The church will always march forward. It has 2,000 years. 
But the unstoppable force of the church is found in suffering. It's found in us joyfully embracing that 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 he he's worth it all. He's a, he's worth even more than our suffering. Uh, there's no doubt about that. How does the world stop that that force, that unstoppable force? When we say, you know what, I don't care what you do to me, I'm still going to serve my Lord. That that's unstoppable strength, and. Um, what if the action, what if the church actually does thrive in the face of adversity and suffering? That's what the A2 church did. The early Christian church thrived in suffering. It thrived in adversity. You know that Peter denied the Lord three times? Do you know that in Acts 4, verses 1 through 10, that Peter and John were flogged? You know that when you're flogged, that parts of your your muscle and skin can fly off with the whip, um, being scourged and flogged? But what did they do? What did Peter and John do when they were flogged? They left there in Acts 4 rejoicing. They rejoiced. Why? Because from their perspective, <laughs> I'll try not to cry, but... Peter rejoiced in his suffering because I think he had denied his Lord. And he had proved to the Lord at that time that, that he could follow. I think he rejoiced in, in succeed, successfully being obedient, even to the point of being flogged. Because they considered Jesus worthy of, of being flogged um, before the Sanhedrin. And did they stop? Nope. They, they just, I think that motivated them even more so um, for suffering for our Lord. Uh, Peter could deny his Lord no longer, and that's transformation. That's taking a person who is one way, and now he's another. And I tell you, read First Peter, and Peter talks all about suffering in his book. Uh, in his epistle, and it's a great epistle because uh, he he really lays out he had learned a lot uh, in 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 terms of suffering. I tell you, the Simon that we know in the Gospels and the the Peter that we know in his books are and in the Book of Acts are two different people, uh, completely different people. The testing of our faith develops perseverance. Uh, that is in James 1, verse 3. I want to consider the idea of a bondservant. A bondservant was a person in Rome who had served an owner well, and they had served out their time. Sometimes they were assigned to a home to serve for a certain amount of time. They might say, you're here for 10 years. You have to serve off your debt. And a bondservant was a servant who at the time of their when they had uh, paid off their debt, when they had s- finished their term uh, of serving in a household, uh, it was decided by the owner and decided by the slave or the servant. Um, it was kind of talked about, but they would uh, sometimes the owner would offer for that slave who is now free to now serve in their home. And I, I tell you that um, what they would do in the ceremony was they would, act, and uh, if the servant agreed to serving in the home, uh, it was willingly. They would basically give themselves to willingly uh, serve in the home uh, as a free person. But it was because, you know, uh, they had discovered that owner treated them well, they loved each other. There was actually love there, uh, treated them well. It was a good relationship. And really, truthfully, honestly, the servant had nowhere to go at that point. Um, and so it worked. It was a good place to be. And uh, they would signal this covenant relationship by, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but tattoos and earrings uh, would often indicate who who you uh, were owned by. 
And so they already, in most cases, as a slave, had an earring or a hole in their ear. And they would basically affix your ear to the doorpost of the owner's home and put a nail through it. And it was a signifying act of saying that I, I as a slave, am not leaving this home. It's good to me. Um, I want to willingly serve here. And that's the term that the apostles, many of them will use of themselves. The apostle Paul uses the term of, of willingly. Uh, let me tell you this. If you don't like slavery, I'll tell you this. You're, you're a slave to either the world or Christ. Pick, pick your master. Uh, we're all slaves to either sin or Christ. So if you want to be a, I mean, if you're a slave already, you might as well choose your master. And I tell you, the, the, the treatment of our king is so much greater than the treatment of this world. And so you surrender yourself uh, to willingly uh, to serving him wholeheartedly. And this is uh, the essence of the first century church. I'm going to just close with, the example of a man named Alexamenos. And this was a brother who, who was a faithful witness um, that shined his light and was mocked and ridiculed and insulted. Uh, do we have the photo of Alexamenos? So on the left-hand side is uh, graffiti in a Roman prison. On the left side is a better look of what the graffiti look. The, the left... Uh, the picture on the left is the actual graffiti. You can go to, I think it's the British Museum and see the graffiti. On the right is kind of a better look at it. And it's really this young man who is supposedly worshiping a donkey on a cross. And I will tell you that this donkey on the cross is, is someone in prison mocking this man named Alex Menos uh, for his faith in Jesus. The remarkable thing about this etching, this graffiti, though, it, is, it, it dates back literally to the first century. And it's the first depiction that we have on record of, of Christ on the cross. It's the most oldest reference to the cross like it's extra biblical, it, it's outside of scripture. But this is proof that even within Rome, they were talking about this Jesus that died on the cross. Some were believers and some were not. One, the person that drew this was making fun of this Christian believer. We're not even, we don't know a lot about him. His name is just Alex Amenos. And uh, this this friend or person that knew Alex Menos, I probably would think if he's depicting this on a Roman prison cell, he knew uh, he had he had heard the gospel from this friend Alex Menos. But um, this is offensive. I mean, Jesus is depicted as a donkey on the cross. But I'm telling you, we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice and, and we need to say, I hope that I have the honor of meeting Alex Menos in heaven. And I would just love to <laughs> hug him, get to know him in heaven. And we're going to have these opportunities to meet the saints of heaven. But I want to honor him today, right here, right now, that you know Alex Menos who suffered for his faith. And that as repugnant as that cartoon depiction is of our Lord, who knows, maybe that, that, uh, that person that even drew that drawing came to Christ himself. Maybe he is also in eternity. He's obviously thinking about this. Like, I mean, to carve that into stone on a prison wall, yeah, he's disputing in his mind quite a bit with God right then, right now. Um, but I hope that maybe some of his conclusions were changed. But I want to rejoice that even in spite of everything of just how horrible that is, of what has been said uh, or depicted, that we rejoice in suffering. Uh, that, you know, 
um, as, as I said earlier, um, our suffering is momentary. Eternity is forever. And it will wash. It will wash over us. There will be no crying, no mourning, no tears in heaven. Just joy, peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.